Spada is a successful attorney whose dream was to become a sports talk show host. Elliot Harris is a Chicago Sun-Times sports columnist who wanted to expand his media presence. In the next hour, they combine their talents and love of sports and women by interviewing former professional athletes and lovely ladies on sports and torts. But keeping the boys out of trouble isn't always easy because when David and Elliot are together, they have more fun than should be legal. Elliot, we're back again. What is this, our seventh day show today? Third month, I know. I, I was never good in math. That's why I got into writing. I want to thank all our listeners. We got our ratings. They're incredible. But keep listening. Tell your friends. We enjoy doing this. We enjoy talking to athletes and even the lovely women. Even the lovely women. Wait a second. I think you need to get your priorities straightened out a little bit. I think they might be a little skewed the wrong way, but that's I, just me. I think women drive the show. Women, women drive the world, don't they? <laughs> exactly. We got a full plate today again. We've got NBA Hall of Famer, one of the 50 greatest players, Rick Barry. We have college basketball, soon to be Hall of Famer, Cassie Russell, and we have someone from Playboy Golf, JJ Nesham, who is one of the main marketing mavens for that lovely event, which has its finals coming up in Los Angeles. They also have a Chicago stop on the uh, Playboy Golf Tour, which is always a fun event. And for those who are saying, J.J., why are you having a guy on J.J. is a woman, I found out. Definitely, definitely. But how about that Bulls game last night? They blew a 17-point halftime lead. You like that? I don't get it. Just when everybody's set to say, okay, the Bulls are going to make it at least to the NBA Finals, then they have a game like that and say, hmm, not so fast. There's a reason that uh, the Billy Donovan, the coach of Florida, said that Al Horford's a better player than Noah. He showed it last night. Boy, he, he's been a, a fairly dominant force since he came into the league, at, performing at a higher level. I mean, you have to love Joachim's energy. You have to love the improvement he's had season to season. But uh, Al Horford, not bad. Let's get to our first guest, a guy who wasn't a bad NBA player, was one of the 50 greatest players in history, played with numerous teams. He was a small forward. NBA Hall of Famer Rick Barry. How you doing, Rick? I'm doing great, guys. Thanks. He was a big, small forward, though. Uh, not really. No? Not, not not in today's game. Yeah. <laughs> I'd probably be I'd probably be more like a two guard size. You'd be the shooting guard, right? Yeah, I could be the shooting guard in today's game. The way the size of these guys. I mean, we had to get seven footers playing out there at the three spot for heaven's sake. Rick David Spader, I looked at your rookie year. You averaged 20 points and 10 rebounds a game as a six seven small forward. How did you do that? Well, you know, actually, it's really kind of interesting because most of these kids coming into into the NBA today don't stay in school for four years, and it's a big transition. It's a major difference when you go from playing in college to go to the NBA. In my case, uh, I went to school for four years. You couldn't play as a freshman, so I played on a freshman team that they had. And I got three years of, of playing ball in college in a system that was really professional basketball. Uh, my coach was a former top NBA player by the name of Bruce Hale, and we played pro basketball. We played man-to-man defense. We ran the ball. Back in those days, my senior year, without the three-point shot, we averaged 98 points a game. Think about that. 98 points a game for college basketball without the three-point shot. So I was also taught by him after the season was over, working on my game, showing me the things to expect, how to use my body, what the pro game was going to be like. So I really had four years of minor league training, so to speak. 
when I went to the NBA, and I actually I averaged a lot. I think I averaged like some like sixteen, seventeen rebounds a game or something in my senior year. It was easier for me. It, it really was actually easier in my rookie year than it was my senior year in college because I had one guy guarding me. When I played in college, the entire defense was geared to stop me. Box and ones, zones, you know, just everything to try to shut me down. So when I went there, I said, oh, my God, this is incredible. I get to play against only one guy. And it really was not a big transition for me. And it's rare that a guy comes out of college and makes the first team all pro which I was fortunate to do. In fact, I still look at that plaque that I have from the Sporting News, and I look at it as me as a 21-year-old kid. Well, actually, it turned 22 before the season was over. I'm 20, just to turn 22 years old, and I'm looking there, and there I am with Will Chamberlain, with, with uh, Jerry West, uh, Elgin Baylor, my hero, Oscar Robertson, and I'm on that plaque with them as one of the top five players in the NBA. It, it, was, it was like a dream come true for me. So was it easy to... Not get overconfident at that point, say, hey, I've got it made. I'm as good as these guys. Well, I actually got to be better the next year because I realized the thing is, is in that first year when I was playing, I got most of my points because Guy Rogers was our point guard, God rest his soul, my point guard teammate, who was a great passer, loved to get assists. And so they, they nicknamed me the Miami Greyhound coming from the University of Miami because I just ran and ran and ran. And I got out on the fast breaks and I got a lot of easy baskets in transition. And I drove to the basket and got to the free throw line. I didn't do a lot of outside shooting. And so... I realized that the next year that they're going to probably play me to try to shut down the middle, try to force me outside. So I needed to get prepared to be able to do more from the perimeter. And so I really worked even more on that part of my game. And it was kind of easy, actually, because they backed off me. And I think early in the season that next year, at one stretch, I was averaging over 40 points a game because they were giving me the shot and I was knocking the shot down. And then when they came up, mommy was able to drive by them and get to the free throw line. I still ran, still got out on the break. I mean, it's so simple. When you break it down, I even talked to my younger son. I said, they'll score 20 points a game. is not very difficult. I mean, if you figure it out, if you get out on the fast break and you have a team that runs, you should be able to get, you should be able to get six points a game on transition baskets. If you just hustle a little bit, okay, and get one offensive rebound put back in a game, you've got up to eight points. You drive to the basket and get fouled and get to the foul line about six times. You make your free throws. You should be making at least, you know, to me, all six, but five out of six. So where am I? You know, I'm up to 15 points a game, basically, almost, or, you know, 13, 15. Well, all I have to do is make three outside shots out of seven or eight that I take, and I'm at 20 points. I'm so glad you said this. They wrote me in the coaching fourth and fifth grade girls basketball. My oldest daughter's in second grade, and these parents were on me. you got to run plays. you got to run plays. This team didn't win a game last year. I have these girls, they can't do full-court press, they can only do half-court press, playing man-to-man D, going for the ball, going for steals, and going at the basket. And these girls are running these other teams out of the gym. They're smaller. And I go, and the parents still say, but why don't you run some plays? I said, they're fourth and fifth grade girls. If they pressure, they could steal the ball every time. If they go to the basket, try to score, because they're going to miss most of their shots. But when they make it, and you know what, they wear the teams down, but no one wants to do that anymore. Well, even in the NBA, it's kind of pathetic because whatever happened to actually trying to create easy baskets for your star players? Now, now what they do is all they do is you know Kobe holds off his man. Uh, you know, you watch Dwayne Wade, you watch LeBron, you watch Dirk, and whatever. They 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 have the toughest guy guarding them all the time, right? And they hold them off to get the ball, and they go one on one against this guy with the whole other team sucking in trying to do stuff. And these guys are so good, they're still able to produce. What would ever happen if you ran them over double and triple staggered screens, if you ran reverses and stuff, and got them easy baskets and make the game a little bit easier for them? I mean, that's the part that I miss, is trying to utilize 
your offense to create opportunities, not only for your star players, because they're so worried about them. You run double and triple staggered screens. They're going to double. The two guys are going to jump out sometime, which will free a guy up to slip to the basket and get an easy hoop that way. I, I, I was taught that the more screens you set, the more decisions the defense has to make, the more the likelihood that they'll make a mistake. And if your t- the players are smart enough to recognize those things, you will pick a team apart. What do you think is going down in Miami with Bosch and Wade and uh, James down there? Well, I have no problem with what they did. I mean, these guys want to win. I mean, I know LeBron was criticized by, uh, by, by Michael Jordan and by Magic Johnson a lot. But, hey, those guys had some great players that joined and they won championships. If Magic Johnson had played with the Los Angeles Lakers and didn't have Kareem and James Worthy and all those other great players he played with and played for seven years there, didn't see a likelihood of winning a championship, and he had a chance to go team up with another great player to win, he would not be in L.A. <laughs> Now, a part of the game I miss was your specialty, the underhand free throw. Well, you're probably the last guy in the NBA to shoot free throws underhand. George Johnson was my teammate who went okay. from 45% to 80%. Okay. Will we ever see that again? Or well, if, it, my, if my 17-year-old son, who's now shooting him in high school, uh, continues to improve and makes it up there, yeah, you might see it again. <laughs> I I can't call it Rick Barry style because the kids don't know who Rick Barry is, so I call it granny style, and the girls look at me and say, listen, it's easy to make free throws that way. Well, yeah, the problem is is that when people have them do it, they have them do it with a technique that really isn't very good. Uh, and you really can't shoot it unless your hands are big enough to hold the ball properly. But like anything else, even if you did it with a crazy form, if you did it enough times and you repeated it, it probably could work for them. Uh, but it's a very soft shot. It's very easy to do. It's a natural position that you're shooting from. Shooting a basketball is not a natural position. You know, I mean, do you walk around with your arms up, you know, up in the air and, and your elbows bent? And you know, I don't think so. Uh, so that's the whole difference. It's a very natural shot, very easy to control it, and an incredibly soft shot. Yeah, when it, it hits the rim, it just dies. Yeah, but it worked a lot better for you than it did for Wilt. Well, Wilt <laughs> didn't have the right technique. I used to joke with him about it and say, yeah, you should have come to me. I would have shown you how to do it properly. Your technique sucked. But a lot of these guys in the NBA, these stars, I mean, they give a lot of points away at the free throw line. You take the Dwight Howard. Well, forget the points. They give away games. <laughs> that's, that's the most important right. thing. It's not about the individual points. It's about the team points and the games that you lose. If a team, if an NBA team shot 80% from the free throw line as a team during the course of an NBA season, that's worth probably 8 to 10 victories for them in close games. But you don't see them sh- shooting 80, no, 80%. It's all about the ego. I didn't want to do it that way. Are you kidding me? I said, come on, Dad, everybody make fun of me. I said, son... You really need to try it because it's not about that. He said, if you're making the shots, nobody's going to make fun of you. I said, it's about trying to shoot the highest percentage. It's the only part of the game you can be totally selfish, think only of yourself, and still help your team. What? And, so, and so when I did shoot it and I made the transition over, I always remember I was shooting in one game and the one guy from the stands just said, hey, Barry, you big sissy. You know, and the guy next to him said, what are you making fun of him for? He never misses. <laughs> no, you're exactly right. What do you think what's going on here in Chicago with Derrick Rose? They're saying he's going to probably win the MVP, the youngest guy to do it. I mean, this guy is just the ultimate team player. Yeah, he's really developed in quite a, quite a player. Whether he wins the MVP or not, I, I don't know. There's some other pretty darn good players out there that he's going to have to battle, but certainly he's in contention for it and, and doing an outstanding job. And It's always nice to see players improve. I mean, great examples of guys that never be satisfied with what you're doing. Probably the greatest example of that, uh, you know, he's doing it pretty quickly, is Steve Nash. I mean, who in the world, when he was playing at Santa Clara, ever thought that Steve Nash would even maybe have a chance to play in the NBA? And here he goes, and he should have been the three-time MVP. He got screwed in the third time. People just felt that, well, God, Steve Nash can't get it three times, but he deserved it over Dirk Nowitzki. I'm sorry. He had a better year his third year than he did in the first two, and he didn't get it. Steve Nash is unbelievable, the player that he became, because he continued to work on his game and improve. And that's what you have to do. If you're a great player, you can never be satisfied with what you're doing. You're always striving to look. 
So you're on Sirius Radio? No, I'm not. I no? haven't done Sirius for a while. I've okay. been on radio. I'm just working in the business world. I didn't hear the word million dollars in my contract negotiation, okay. so I still work doing a lot of uh, really interesting things. Basketball related? Uh, the only thing I do with basketball related is at www.betterbasketball.com, and I really got involved with them because it's great, great teaching materials to try to teach people how to play the game the right way. And Rick Torbett, the head of this, came up with a thing called the read and react offense, which I think should be instilled in almost every every elementary school and, and junior high and high school to, because it really forces players who are, don't have a great natural gift for the game to teach the game and play it the proper way. And there's just so many things that you can do with it. It's, it's just an incredible uh, offensive concept he came up with. Who's your pick to win the NBA Finals this year? Well, I, you know, I, I, I don't know who's going to win the Finals. If I knew that, I'd bet on it. And betting on an NBA game is the dumbest thing in the world because you always <laughs> expect the unexpected. But there are four teams in each conference that you'd have to take a look at that have a chance to win. If you're going to go by statistics, if they're healthy, come, and everything is predicated on being healthy come playoff time, okay? Because if you're not healthy and you have one of your key players out, you're in trouble. Just ask San Antonio over the last few years. Now they got Parker out, but... Based on statistics, no team that has gotten off to the start that the, that the San Antonio Spurs have gotten off to has not won the NBA championship that season. So they would have to be the front runner from a statistical standpoint. Certainly the Lakers, you know, they've had a little downtime here, but that happens to most teams. The only team I ever remember is the Chicago Bulls when they won 60-some-odd games that didn't go through a two-week period where they didn't play their best basketball. It seems to always happen to most teams. The Lakers may be going through that now. But they're the defending champs. They know what it takes to win. And you certainly can't count them out when you have you know, a player like Kobe Bryant and Paul Gasol and, and, and Lamar Odom and the other guys. Uh, then the Dallas Mavericks will be thrown into the equation. And a dark horse in the West would probably be Oklahoma City. I think picking up Perkins may really help them a lot. So they also gave the Lakers a pretty good run. And they had a lot of young players last year. And they'll be a better team because they have some experience now. So those four teams in the West... In the East, it's uh, it's Boston, it's Miami, it's Orlando, and I tell you what, you probably have to throw the Knicks into the equation now that they picked up Melo and they and they've got Chauncey Billups, who I really love. They knocked off Miami the other day. They had a real battle in, down in Orlando playing against the Magic, and and you know could have conceivably won that game as well. They become a better basketball team. So whether or not they're going to be as good in the, good enough defensive team to be able to do it remains to be seen. But you have to throw them into the mix as a dark horse. How surprising is it to see the Spurs transition from the Tim Duncan-dominated team to uh, up-tempo, breakneck uh, score? Well, here's will. the thing: is you have to go along with what your personnel. I mean, Tim is you know slowed down. He's at the you know the twilight of his career, but he's still certainly a, a force for them. Uh, and I, I've always you know Parker is like one of the quickest guys. In fact, I think two years ago, if I'm not mistaken, Tony Parker led the league in inside scoring. A point guard, <laughs> which is pretty remarkable when you think about it. And then Ginobili's always been just an incredibly attacking guy, can get to the basket, uh, and I, I've always liked his game a lot. And then they always fill around the, the other spots with other people who can do the job, and they're always going to be a tough defensive team. That's the see, that's the constant with the Spurs. Popovich demands defense from these guys, and you don't win an NBA championship if you're not a good defensive team. You don't have to necessarily be the best team in the league, but you have to be one of the better ones. And I think that's the, probably the most redeeming quality about the NBA is that no team has ever won a championship that I can recall that was not one of the better defensive teams. And you have to play the game properly on both ends of the court in order to be declared a champion. Because they have those European players every year. They plug in, and those guys know how to play basketball, fundamentals, team concept, where a lot of these guys come right from high school, or they were for a while or one year in college, and they don't know how to play in a team style. Well, the problem with the basketball in the United States is, is that so many of these players are being shortchanged. A great many of these AAU things, which I'm not a big fan of AAU because I think they play far too many games. I don't know if the teaching is being done properly. I know it's not being done properly because I see these players who are so incredibly gifted athletically, but yet, as you just pointed out, they don't have 
what I think is essential. You have to have a good base to build on. You can't build a skyscraper on a small foundation. Your foundation in basketball or in anything that you do in life are the fundamental principles and concepts of what it is that you're attempting to do. The more knowledge you have in that area, the bigger your foundation, which means what? The taller the building. And so if you're gifted with all this talent, you can maximize that talent and reach your full potential if you have that base of the fundamentals. So many of these players, and there's guys who have made it all the way to the NBA on great natural talent, who will never be as good as they should be because they don't have that base. Where's your son going to go next year? My son will be a senior next year. My youngest one will be a senior, and he's uh, he's he's got a chance to be a very nice player, and uh, and we'll see what happens to him. He's very very smart, and uh, hopefully he'll go to a place where he can get a good education because you can't always rely on sports to be the answer for you, and uh, he is very smart. So I like to see him go to a good good academic school where he can possibly help them play. He needs best of my other boys to be red shirted. He, he's 17 years old and he doesn't shave yet. Okay, okay. so he, he's just hit a growth spurt. He's Now, if the Barry family gets together, can you win a game of horse against the boys? Probably not. Uh, I mean, the closest I ever came to doing something, I never would never would play against my boys in anything. I'd always have them play on my side when I had camps and things of that nature. The closest I came was when Brent was at the uh, at the at the desert showcase that they had for the NBA when he was coming out of uh, Oregon State, and we were on the court doing so. He said, Dad, let's let's play horse." So I played horse with him. I said, "Okay, let's do it." So I won two games. He won two games, and I said, "Okay, I'm done." No, no, come on, best of five, best of five. I said, no, I'm done. He said, why? Come on, let's see. I said, son, listen, if I don't play, you're never going to know whether you're ever good enough to beat me. (laughs) That's great. Thank you very much, Rick, for coming on the line. It was a pleasure talking to you with the insight. I mean, you don't get that from many ex-NBA guys. Yeah, you don't get that a lot of places nowadays, unfortunately. (laughs) You should be coaching somewhere right now. Well, I don't know about the coaching part of it. Broadcasting. You know, I'd love... I'd love when I was doing the broadcasting. That would be something that would be fun to do again. But, hey, life is not what you know, but who you know. And, uh, you know, you move on and you accept what life has to offer. I can't stand people who sit around and wallow in self-pity, and, and that's unfortunate. But, uh, you know, life has been great. God has blessed me with good health. I have a wonderful family and have wonderful friends, and that's the most important thing. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure talking to you. Take care. All right. There was Hall of Famer Rick Berry, one of the 50 greatest players in the NBA history, the class guy. I mean, his points on coaching – I wish people listened to it. Like I was saying, these fourth and fifth grade girls, the parents now understand and they're looking at me going, you're wearing these other teams down. I said, yeah, because fourth and fifth graders have the attention span of a gnat and just keep it simple, stupid. Kiss. Definitely. I mean, I one, you want to have fun. And if you're going to tell girls, okay, you got to be here, you got to be there, design all these plays, that I don't think that's fun. I think that's work. You're listening to Sports and Torts. I'm David Spade with co-host Ellie Harris. We'll be back in a moment. If you're-
you're injured at work, don't try to be a hero and work in pain. Immediately tell your boss how you were injured and seek medical treatment. Then call my guy, attorney David Spada, to make sure that your rights are protected. David will fight for the payment of your medical bills, lost wages, and settlement. Insurance companies and employers have individuals representing their interests. Why not you? You must have an experienced attorney on your side. All fees are contingent upon your recovery. Call David Spada at 847-729-COMP. That's 847-729-2667. 